welcome to today's episode of the PGR Cast. Joining us today is Professor Neil Ward. Neil is an Emeritus Professor from the University of Surrey, specialising in the field of analytical chemistry. Thank you for joining us today, Neil. And do you want to get us started with how you became a lecturer? Well, thank you very much, Matt, and my greetings to everybody who is listening to this. I should explain right from the onset, as I do in all of my conference presentations and lectures, that my accent is not Australian. I am actually a New Zealander. And my own PhD boss, when I did my degrees in New Zealand, was for both my master's and my PhD from the University of Bristol. So it's kind of like completing the circle. So I got into the field of becoming a lecturer when I came to this country via two years in North America and Canada because of the development of a particular analytical technique, which was at Imperial College. So I was there for six years. And that was when I then started to engage with both master's and postgraduate programs. Started teaching, but more importantly, because I was working in a nuclear reactor facility in Ascot in Berkshire, I then had to become responsible for looking on day to day uh, to guide and to develop the research themes of a lot of the postgraduates from Imperial College. I then went to the University of Surrey in the 80s because a colleague of mine had developed a fantastic new analytical technique, inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. And that's where I really started my journey as a young lecturer. And some 50 PhD students and some 70 or 80 master's students later, uh, I would say that I have had a wonderful experience in guiding young people through their postgraduate research studies. Excellent. And I guess the first question that we're most interested in is, how do you supervise a PhD or master's student? What's your sort of technique and, and style? Well, I think a good way to respond to that is it's like most things on your journey through life. You have to look at examples of what have come into your experience, identifying what is good, what is bad, and what you would like it to be. So maybe a blend of, and I certainly did that. My PhD boss brought to me things which I learned from him is the best way to interact with my potential research students, and also things that you shouldn't do. And that big assumption is never assume that they all come in exactly the same, that they've all got the same sort of experience and knowledge and cultural background, because I've had PhD and master's students from all over the world. And I've learned a lot about their world and what they've come from. You know, Rabadan is a completely different experience when you're a PhD supervisor because fundamentally you've not only got to be engaged in what their experience is and what their faith is making them do, but you've got to balance their workload and what your expectations are against those kind of experiences. So that is just one of the many examples. So you learn very quickly, it is a relationship based on what you hope is good practice. And for me, based on the fact that I'm also a New Zealander, I think it's very important that the first primary thing is communication. You should never assume that someone is coming in to do postgraduate research for the reason that they're going to have their hands held, which is a, an attitude that has come into UK education primarily from the way it's developed through schools now into undergraduate programs, but more in that you're going to be there to ask them questions, to guide them, to support them, but more importantly, be available when they have problems so they can discuss them and you can point them in the right direction on how they can confront these issues to get the most out of 
not only into taking postgraduate research, but enjoying undertaking postgraduate research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you've touched on some topics that we've touched on in the past in terms of pastoral support and emotional intelligence, what it takes to, you know, create that bond between supervisor and student. So you've mentioned the differences between nationalities and cultures of your students. Have you supervised masters and PhDs other than in the UK? Yes, I actually was responsible for some at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia in Canada. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when I was a postgraduate uh, in New Zealand, because of the large university that I was at, which was Massey in Palmerston North, which is pr primarily for veterinary, horticulture, agricultural, right across the sector of what is typical to New Zealand, we were responsible for running all the practical laboratories, but more importantly, being there to support each other within a PhD, master's platform. So the whole of my experiences, even through my own postgraduate studies, was taking on board a responsibility of understanding that you're not alone, you're not doing it on your own. Yeah. You are there to support each other, mm -hmm. listen and help and understand, even though it's not your field. Because one of the other advantages of doing postgraduate research is that in the old days it used to be, well, you're in a chemistry department, you only work with chemists. No, you do not. Because now we've broadened it into doctoral colleges and more importantly across university platforms you are learning to get the experiences of maybe what someone's doing in mathematics or in veterinary science or in nursing or whatever the field would be. And that is really also a big plus for you. Okay, you need to realise that you are fundamentally there doing research in your specific area in relation to your supervisors. And in the modern day world, you have more than one supervisor. You may have two, three, you may even have a commercial stroke industrial support supervisor. Mm -hmm. You may have a supervisor like I've had many who are abroad mm -hmm. because my students are doing research projects in their home countries like Argentina, in Iraq, in Greece or wherever around the world. So you have to adapt and mm -hmm. put those things on the plate for the student to be able to adapt as they are doing their studies, they are becoming much more aware that it isn't just a very focused area. Mm. There's an opportunity to learn a lot more. And I noticed there that you said your PhD boss, and I yep. never refer to my supervisor as my PhD boss. <laughs> that is being a New Zealander. And in fact, we have a lot of colloquial, I won't even tell you what my name was while I was doing my PhD, because my primary supervisor was a geochemist from Bristol. My second one was a agronomist. My third, and he was from Wales. My third one, who was the New Zealander, was in fact the analytical chemist, and they all spoke Swahili. <laughs> in fact, my PhD supervisor spoke 17 languages. Thank so in know. various meetings, they kept using various terms for me, which many years later I discovered were, should I say, not always complimentary, <laughs> but it was part of the fun. Mm -hmm. I should also say I'm rather unique in the sense that my PhD boss, his time to meet his students was Friday afternoon on the golf course. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to have my weekly <laughs> Friday afternoon. <laughs> For those who did not play golf, they would turn up with their partners and or friends because he decided it was very important that there was a very large social aspect to his group. Mm -hmm. And I have done exactly the same. I have for years, when I had eight, nine, ten PhDs at any one time, there would always be social events. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would be, should I say, very difficult to organise because of the different faiths, mixture between male, female, so gender influence and whatever else. Um, so sometimes when you would say, right, we will go to the local bar uh, on campus, we'll have lunch together. 
two or three of my students wouldn't drink alcohol and would not actually want to be at the table with, uh, should I say, if they're from a particular country where it's not traditional to go to a bar, well, okay, I would respect their wishes, so we would sit outside, but they also had to learn that, you know, we are here as a team mm. working, and it's not just about chemistry, analytical chemistry, it's about the mm. other things which are, I think, part of what is not always enjoyed at the time. Once you're finished, you suddenly realise you have learned a lot about yourself, about life skills, through mixing with others who are all working mm -hmm. for the same cause. You are working for a particular group of people mm. in a particular area of science, engineering, social sciences, or whatever the field would be. Mm. Mm -hmm. And how do you think students and supervisors can go about cultivating that sort of group dynamic and, and getting that extra experience from their PhDs or, or masters? Well, that is a very interesting question and a very challenging question to answer because what I have seen over the years is there has been a dramatic change in the UK universities on the emphasis of what a supervisor needs to do. Mm -hmm. Huge pressure now on staff to publish, bring in grants, obviously go to conferences, network, et cetera, et cetera. There's a huge demand to work behind locked doors to actually get out the next grant opportunity and whatever else. And this has been at the cost of what, as I would say, is critical. You must always have an open door policy. Okay. In fact, uh, you will know, Matt, uh, I would hardly ever leave my office before seven o'clock at night because at five o'clock, most of the department would go home and my postgraduates would know that is the time to come and find me <laughs> because I would actually be available outside of the normal day-to-day -day pressures that you are with your administration and all the other things you do within a university academic environment. Mm. Mm. How, how would you say this pressure that you're talking about, pressure to publish, to attend conferences, to constantly network, has changed the way that supervisors may you know, apply that pressure down to their students? Well, there is a double edge to that. There is a higher demand on having applicants which hopefully are much more better prepared to be running when they come into a PhD or into a master's program. In other words, they don't need to go through periods of training, support, guidance, etc. You are hoping that they'll have picked up a lot of those so-called academic skills before they will come on to do postgraduate research. And by the way, that is not necessarily always the case. Your CV may show that you're excellent at passing exams, but does it involve a program like what Matt had at the University of Surrey doing a work-based learning year, i.e. a professional training year, where he worked for a year out in the real world, which provided them with a lot of those skills which are so critical outside of academia to enhance the opportunities of how you can apply to postgraduate research. Mm -hmm. That's why I always say volunteering. Your, your, your profile that you bring to the table to do postgraduate research you need to be more than just a good academic. You have got to have had a lot of other experiences because the onset challenge is your supervisor or supervisors may have less time than they used to have to be available to actually have weekly meetings, should I joke, daily meetings, which is what I insist on, and I put that time available. It may only be for five minutes, but it is to ask the obvious questions. Where are their problems? How are we going to solve them? There's an instrument broken down. What are we going to do? We've run out of standards. What are we going to do about it? And you can't wait a month. And I hear in some cases, you know, students are actually booking up 
literally two weeks, three weeks ahead, especially if their their supervisors are very senior people within a department who've got a lot of engagement with committees, maybe on Senate, may have responsibilities to the departmental head or be the departmental head. So fundamentally, you've got to work out a very good balance with your supervisor and in many ways, be proactive. You, 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 you are going to work with this people or this one person three, four years. It becomes a relationship. And one of the things I would say to Matt, and he knows, I know most of my PhD students. I still know them. I go to their weddings. I know how many children they have because they're constantly social media sending me that information because through their experience, I have developed a very unique relationship. That's why I call mine a boss. He was my boss because he was the one to whom I was answerable. Um, and as a, it's a sign of, you know, the way many of my uh, students will refer to me in the same way. Uh, my, my Brazilian uh, PhD who just turned up for her graduation, mm. she always sends all her emails to me, hi boss, how are you? <laughs> so it's, it's kind of an endearment. It is a thing that shows that it is a very special relationship you have. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've touched on a lot of relevant topics there. I wanted to pick up on one of the first ones that you said is how well does an undergraduate degree prepare you for a postgraduate degree? And that's something that we touched on in the last, um, the last episode. And we, we kept it to our experiences, which all three of us in that case has been in the UK. And we all agreed that the amount of learning on the job and learning independently that you have to do in a postgraduate degree, at the very least in the UK, is not something that an undergraduate, even to a master's level, prepares you. So I, I personally would say I, I needed quite a lot of hand-holding in that first yep. year. But, you know, now four oh, years on. That is, that, that is a fantastic subject. Because you've got to define what has happened at the undergraduate degree level. Because as we have known, there has been a whole change on what is the quality of A-level grades that allow you entry into a university. Universities have become very specific in their numbers, the number of students they want, the balance for different groups that they must have now within their, their cohort. So through all of that, there's been a lot of pressures, even at the undergraduate level, on universities and staff, right? Going to university, you've always got to ask yourself, why am I going to university? Don't worry about why I'm going to do postgraduate research. That's another question to ask. But a lot have gone because they've gone through a high school which has, or a college which has been very keen because they're academically good. You must now go to a PhD because you're better what your parents have done. Or your grandparents would love to see their grandchild with a, with, with, you know, with a university qualification. And that's natural within families. But more importantly, the message was, if you want a good job, you will need a degree. And that has actually become quite true. I mean, I've taught nursing studies at the University of Surrey. You have to have a degree to do nursing studies. You go back 20 or 30 years ago, someone would throw their hand in the air at that kind of statement. So we've now reached a stage where there is a big pressure in society that maybe you have to go to university to have that qualification because A-levels, and there's been a lot of questions about what's the value of A-levels nowadays, to get a good job, to be successful on your career pathway, you need a university qualification. Now, some people will get that and then say, is that enough? Do I now need another qualification? Because if I want to go into pharmacy, I will need a PhD. Now, that's not true, but there's always this challenge to put a higher benchmarker that you have to achieve to hopefully 
into the job market and be more successful and obviously earn more money. So how would you say doing a PhD has changed from when you did your own PhD to now in terms of exclusivity and what it means in terms of career prospects? Well, to answer that question, I've got to go back to one thing about the undergraduate program. And here I've got to brag because I'm at the number one university in the United Kingdom for work-based learning. We are the ones who established it, the third university in the world. So the University of Surrey is unique in the United Kingdom for having degrees which used to have a large component of our students do at least one year in their subject area working in the real world, be it in a company, be it in a research facility or whatever, globally in many cases. And I've always been a great believer, and I, I love it in high schools, schools that involve having a one or two week engagement in the real world through the educational program, because living in a world that is only under the control of educators does not teach you everything you need in life. Going to an undergraduate degree, which is supported within the degree, like it is at Surrey, visited by academics. Poor old Matt had three academic visits from me and his workplace. <laughs> and he will never forget the opportunities of me turning up and wanting to know everything. You know, it wasn't just uh, have a cup of tea and how are you, Matt? How were the IP issues? <laughs> and that was part of the topics, plus confidentiality, doing proper professional presentations, reflecting on his report writing, the whole part of it is part of the educational program. That is acquired through my own experiences. Coming back to your question, the first thing you've got to answer is why would I ever want to do postgraduate research? Masters is normally because I want to do a PhD and I don't have the grades which will allow me to get sufficient academic uh, strength in the subject area I want to do or I'm not going to get funding because you've got to have at least a 2-1 at the bachelor's level to be able to get good government funding to do a PhD. For master's students, it may also be, I just want to tweak into a slight specific direction. So I have done general chemistry, but I now want to go into space technology, blah, 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 which allows you to have entry because you've got a chemistry degree. So a one-year experience through a master's program with a little bit of research, which is what, three months or whatever, depends on the actual design of the master's. But when you get to the PhD, you've really got to ask yourself, like I was, why do I want to do one? My honest answer at the time, so we're going way back to the 70s, beginning of the 70s, is one, I fancy having DR put in front of my name. <laughs> Being a doctor sounds pretty special. Till you go and work in South America and everybody who teaches is called a professor, which gets a little bit interesting how different cultures, and I think you're smiling because it's part of the Spanish world that does that. The next thing is, is that you've got to ask the question which Matt knows I will ask, where does this take you? What is the end of the journey? Is this going to get you the kind of job? And what I hear today is, I don't know. I really don't know what I want to do now, so I think I'll go on and do a PhD because I really don't know what I want to do at the moment, but okay, I've been in education another three or four years. That is really not the first step forward you should do if you're considering postgraduate research. And, and okay, I have no problem with a student who wants to brag about the idea that it's going to enhance. You know, there's only a small percentage of people who walk around in any community who has got a PhD, who can call themselves a doctor or the equivalent in some of the other areas like engineering where they have uh, different titles to their postgraduate degrees. So 
having some self-motivation about I want to be better than others, I'm actually quite happy to see. You've got motivation, great. What subject area you're wanting to do it in, I guess a lot of that comes back to when you went to high school, then you went on to university. Is It's a subject I like. Sadly, I had too many say it's a subject because I did well at in my exams. Well, I did very well at high school in physics, but I would never have gone to university to do physics. Thank you, just does not me in any form, shape or size. I did chemistry because my father was an orchardist and used to put chemical sprays, which ultimately killed him. He died of leukemia from using chemical sprays way back in the 50s and 60s on our orchards. And he basically said, you should go to university and learn about what were in these chemicals. And I actually liked my high school teacher who taught chemistry. So that was my personal reflection on answering that question. So what would you recommend to those students that are coming to their final year of either a three-year bachelor's or a four-year master's or a five-year master's, even having done a year in industry like you explained, and go, I still don't know what what I want to do? That is sad because that is something wrong with government stroke, society stroke, the whole way in which the economic sector of countries are modifying and changing. I mean, I remember way back in the 70s, you went to New York, half the taxi drivers were PhDs because it was an economic downthrow in America where fundamentally people were coming out with high qualifications but no jobs. And we, we could end up ultimately in that situation again through what is changing within Europe and in the United Kingdom at the present moment. So one of the big questions, and it is a really difficult one to answer, is one, what and why am I doing a PhD? Is there a pathway out the other end which will allow me to do what I want to do, if you can define what that's going to be, even if it is to go into teaching? I am a great advocate of teaching. I am a teacher, first and foremost. I am a teacher. I love teaching young people across, and it isn't just standing up in a lecture room. It's the journey of taking them hand by hand through their their, their own studies. Mm-hmm. So going in any multitude of directions, you've got to kind of try and identify it. If you don't know, then you need to find out. Now, one of the questions I get asked, because I do a lot of open days at Surrey, is should I take a year off before I go to university? Well, the big answer from most academics is no, because you'll probably, once you've got out, you've got a job, you will find it difficult to return back into the educational forum with a lack of money social restriction because you are supposed to be studying and night out partying every night. I don't want smiles from that comment because, you know, it is a balance, isn't it, of trying to get everything together. It, it, it really comes back to, again, throughout the degree, once you have started a PhD, you have got to be able to network, take the opportunities to come, hence why I always send my students to conferences I love the doctoral college idea of bringing different departments together and you mixing with others socially through well-being, through whatever else, so that you can learn what's inside other people. Because that may actually guide you down the career pathway, which is ultimately not what your degree has defined. The other big nightmare is you are going to be working with specialists in a unique field. There may not be a lot of people who are going to offer you jobs in that unique field. It's great for their career, because that is what the university, they have built up their career in their own specialization. So one of the things you've got to ask the question when you are seeking a particular PhD field is to ask the question, well, how many PhD students you've had and what's happened to them? What journey have they gone to once they have left you? 
because that will give you an idea of what did they acquire both personally and professionally in the way of skills which allowed them in whatever country or culture or gender group that they've come from will allow you to go understand what you can do with those, that, that particular qualification. Hmm. So would you say there's a direct correlation with the students that you've supervised that in the first year of their PhD didn't have that direct and concise motivation for the PhD that they'd chosen to study and what they came out four years later to do? In my case, I would say the large number of mine from day one knew what they wanted to do. Why? Because I'd already taught them. A large number of my PhDs were those who'd come through the undergraduate and master's program, not always in chemistry. I've had a lot of radio chemists, I've had a lot of nuclear chemists, I've had physicists, I've had people from biological sciences because I cover a broad spectrum of applied areas within the field of analytical chemistry. My overseas students have come to me because they've known of my reputation through my website, through my LinkedIn site, and all the things that I have learned, especially from Matt, how to actually demonstrate to the outside world what I've got to offer. But you are right, there will be some, and I'm afraid that is part of my job. That is my responsibility as a supervisor. I'm not there to just make them do my work. I am there to give them the broadest opportunity to ask the right questions, and if they don't know what the questions should be, to go out and seek answers which will help them to ask the right question. Do you think there's a bit of a generational difference? So the youth of today, which is, I assume, a lot bigger with mass, a, a bigger number of, say, 21 to 24-year-olds, are coming out with a master's today than in the 70s. And you are absolutely right. And a much larger come out with a master's thinking, I still don't know what to do. Yes. Whereas in the 70s, what I'm hearing is, is if you did a master's, you were there for a reason because it was a lot less common to do one. And when you came out with the master's, you know, depending on economical circumstances, you came out with the job or you went for the job that you wanted to. So do you, do you notice a difference totally. between yourself and your generation in the 70s totally. and our generation now? Absolutely. And part of it comes back to the model I gave before with nursing studies. Professional bodies across a lot of different areas are demanding higher and higher level of qualification to get into the actual field. And you're absolutely right. If I go back to the 70s, going on to do a master's, which is compulsory in New Zealand if you want to do a PhD, you have to do a master's degree before you do a PhD. Because um, the one fundamental thing is we only had three-year bachelor degrees and we had really little research experience. So the little bit of master's research experience gave you the opportunity before you decide to go on and do a PhD, which, let's be honest, is mainly research. And thank goodness, not a lot of exams, which was great for me. I didn't like exams. So fundamentally, as the years have gone by, People, and it's come from all walks of life. I mean, I spent a lot of time visiting companies because of our work-based learning program at Surrey. So going out and visiting our students in major, major multinationals around the world, I'm asking them the questions. I like going and visiting human resources manager. What are you looking for in a graduate? And they are changing all the time. They are demanding higher and higher qualification. Why? Because they've lost confidence in what is the A-level's worth these days. 
Each year when you hear the A-level scores are going up and up and up, and the whole way in which the, the secondary school education system has changed, we teach to pass exams to be better on the, the, the school list of what your ranking is and whatever else. Asking a student to think, I'm afraid, is slowly disappearing in UK education. It's more about learning to regurgitate what you need to know to answer the question and the exams that are coming up. And that is a disaster for education. I mean, one of the reasons I love teaching both masters and PhDs is a lot of it, you don't know what the answer is going to be. <laughs> it's going out there and learning to get frustrated when things don't work. Mm. And people do research. not understand. Matt smiles because he knows me as an analytical chemist, which is always another area of controversy within chemistry. There are not many professors of analytical chemistry in the United Kingdom. We are seen as the technicians, the ones who run the samples. Well, I hate to tell you, the whole chemistry world, outside of Matt's specialization using computers, is dependent on people doing measurement, and we are the experts in the field of measurement. That's what analytical chemistry is all about. So our demands have gone from the idea of being technicians to being a specialist who not only knows what their instrument does, they know how to fix it, they know how to modify it because there are new challenges to the types of samples, the things they've got. And that's happened across all subject areas. There are bigger and bigger demands on what is to be learnt, how it's going to be applied in terms of a career pathway. So ultimately, to answer your question, a master's student 15, 20 years ago was adequate. Nowadays, I'm sorry, it is not a golden ticket that you're going to get off your chocolate wrapper that is going to open the door to you getting a good, successful job. Okay, so we know that our generation is more qualified than yep. the generation of the 70s. How does that relate to being decisive about the career choices that we want to make and the career that we want to go down? It comes to the balance again of expectation. Families who are now being asked to pay more and more and more money to satisfy government requirements to support, rightly or wrongly, a educational pathway want to see a return on the money they have invested. So they don't want you to start on £18,000, say, as an example. They want you to start on 28000 Because why are you going to end up having a degree stroke, a PhD, if you do not end up in a higher bracket of income or whatever else? But you've also got to ask yourself, well, what am I going to do with that postgraduate degree? In my world of chemistry, if you go into the chemical industry... A master's will probably guarantee you getting a job in a laboratory doing a lot of routine technical work, be that across the spectrum of organic chemistry, making compounds or whatever. Yes, you'll need some computational expertise and whatever else. And after probably five to ten years, you will end up being a manager, stroke, supervisor, etc. With a PhD, you can shorten that. After about two years, you'll be on the managerial role. You'll have a higher income, more responsibility, and whatever else. Mm. In fact, I always laugh as a chemist. I spend my whole life teaching people to be chemists with no business knowledge, mm. and yet they're going to go into a job, and within probably two years with a PhD, they're going to be expected to become a business manager, which they've had really very little exposure unless you give it to them through the program by making them responsible for their own money. Very few PhD bosses will hand over and say, well, this is your budget, you are responsible for it, so you have to get me to sign off what you're spending. But at the end of the year, you are accountable to the amount of money that you are spending. Mm. 
But that's part of what should be part of the education of doing a PhD and writing publications. And you want to go to a conference, you organise it. So I'm curious to know, with your breadth of experience working with different nationalities and in different countries, yeah. where would you say has the best career prospects for a PhD and the worst? So can you, can you place the UK versus other countries, say in Europe or versus New Zealand, Canada and US, and tell me where in those countries a PhD is most valued? Well, that's a difficult one to answer because quite obviously within the United Kingdom, and I'll have to stick within the field of, of chemistry and work-based work learning for chemistry, you would, in this country, if you are going to go into the chemical industry, <clears throat> there's a cutoff. If you've got a bachelor's degree, you are probably going to go into the technical level and become a general lab worker doing a lot of routine work. Mm. To get into a senior management role, you need to get a higher degree. In other words, you need at least a PhD. Mm. Masters, you're, it depends on the size of the company, but if you're going into a big multinational, the higher the qualification, then you know, you, you're, as I've already given an example, the, the amount of time you'll spend in the lab doing routine work will be reduced because you are going to take on the responsibility of other people and lead ultimately into a senior management role. Throughout Europe, now, for example, I've worked in Switzerland, Germany, uh, France, you name it, the Netherlands, uh, with students doing work placements. Totally different in each country. In Germany, you need a PhD to literally go into the chemical industry and have any kind of responsibility. I mentioned before, if you want to enter the pharmaceutical industry, in Germany, it's across the whole sector. So if you want to work for a big multinational chemical company, you need high qualifications, mm -hmm. etc. Now in Australia and New Zealand, because of the fact that we don't have a large number of big multinational companies because of our economy based on primary food production and whatever else, but we have fantastic companies in wine in terms of obviously anything to do with agricultural food products like milk, milk powder, um, fruit, uh, then quite obviously we are specialists in those areas. Mm -hmm. So having a master's degree gives you a lot more opportunities because mm -hmm. the kind of expectation within the companies is more about you developing once you're in the workplace, mm -hmm. not being able to just run, but you've been given the opportunity to carry on kind of doing your education within the companies. How would you compare the maturity of the postgraduate system, say somewhere like UK that I'm assuming is a lot more mature than somewhere like New Zealand. Oh no, I would disagree. You're using okay. a, you're using a very hard word to define. No, the <laughs> word mature. The mature is different level of expectation. No, not different. so. I meant in terms of years. Oh, in number of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think a lot of that is set down because of the economics of mm -hmm. the situation nowadays. Mm -hmm. The fact that it is now coming more out of the pocket of the family, as opposed to the day. I mean, I. I I really don't want to upset people, but I paid my whole undergraduate degree by working in a freezing works cleaning out sheep intestines from 4 o'clock in the morning to 7.30 at night. That's going to upset a lot of people. So every time I eat a sausage and I know what's on the outside of the sausage skin, I was producing them because there was no money available in those days from government. There were no bursaries or whatever. You wanted to go, and I didn't want my parents who were farmers to pay for me. I'm an independent individual, so I wanted to pay for my own education. Nowadays, it's easy to get grants. 
A lot of it also comes down to how good are you at paying them off? And there's another big debate that the governments are finding that a lot of money they've invested in bursaries are not getting paid back and whatever else. So there is a huge, I mean, the America is the, the model example, $70,000 to do a year at some universities. I mean, that's the other end of the spectrum of what I can only call lunacy. You know, that, that only allows certain individuals to go on to tertiary education because it, it comes down to the availability of money and support. Whereas the other sector, going from a lot of the countries where I've had students, which are totally dependent on the government investing in young people to go on and wanting them, be they China, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, India, you name it. I've had students from all of those, Sudan. You then have a high expectation. You've got to go back to that country and fit into their government program and go through the government requirement to pay off why they invested in you. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what suits what that country has evolved to do. It's not what how I want it to be. Because I think postgraduate research study and going on doing postgraduate studies is part of if you want to do it, do it and enjoy it. Because it's all part of what education and life is about. It doesn't stop when you walk out with a PhD. Once you get into your real job, you're not going to be like my grandfather working for 30 years in the same company waiting for a gold watch. Because most of it, my, my two children are in their 30s, they change jobs every two years. Because they are looking for better opportunities, new challenges, higher levels of responsibility, more money, travel. Both of them are traveling the world just like their father does. So fundamentally, there is a modern way that young people are now looking at what they personally want, as opposed to your grandparents or great-grandparents, so I'm going way back into the 1900s, who were quite humpy, you know, there was a joke. You come out of university with your degree, you were special. The employers were at the gate, ready to offer you a job, and you would work with them for the rest of your life. That is no longer true anywhere. It's changing. Sadly, in some countries, it's because a particular area dries up economically, or some government decides to change policy, and that has a big global impact on your particular company, and you, know, you end up with a lot more redundancies these days. There are people who may only end up in a particular company for two to three years. Mm. And I'm sure the, the amount and breadth and uh, the variety of job opportunities that we have nowadays and, you know, the fact that our generation knows that a job is not for life... Correct. ...probably sets our expectations and is probably related to why there are such a large number of undergraduates after four or five years in university who still go, I, I don't know where I want, where I want to be. Yeah. Right, and you've hit on probably the most important question you've asked... Besides asking, or sorry, answering the question, why do I want to do it? You'll have heard me say, what is at the end of the journey? Mm. Because as Matt knows, one of the other things I am exceedingly passionate about is work-based learning. And I have been involved in the world body for that for some 30 odd years. So the idea that education should involve the real world, mm. to me, is giving you the opportunity that before you take the next step and whatever you do in life, you need to do a bit of research. And that research is personal research. If you're going to go to a particular university, then look at the university. Why would I want to come to Bristol? Mm. 
Is it because my grandfather went to Bristol? No. Is it because they've got the degrees that I'm interested in the subject areas? Great. Right, you then go into chemistry, you look at the staff. Is that a particular area I enjoyed or is that an area that I want to work with? Yeah, okay, great. What's the reputation of that person? What is their profile? And if they don't have a good profile, then don't even look any further because there's something wrong with them. They're not up with the modern world of you as even a professor have got to be able to sell yourself to the outside world. And it's not just future graduates, but looking at potentially what you are offering to the community whom you represent as an academic, mm. to companies, to whoever you do research with. You know, we are part of a global world problem that means we are part of it. We've got to, we don't have the privilege of being an academic because we are an academic. I said to Matt earlier, if you're going to apply to that person to do a PhD, the first thing you want to do is look at their publications, find out who else they've published with and see if you can contact them. Because with all the modern technology, it's pretty easy nowadays to send emails off to someone who may have been a co-author and just ask them a few questions. You know, what was your relationship? How did you find them? Were they available? Did you do much uh, field work? Did you go to many conferences? Then when you come, actually, you, know, you are invited, go and talk to their present day researchers be masters and PhD, because it's through them you will find the answers that you really need. The academic will tell you their story, because they're selling you, because they want you as a researcher. But if you want to work with them, you've got to be able to do your research to see whether you are going to fit in with them. The hardest thing in postgraduate research is the relationship with your supervisor or visors. It is one of the saddest things that I have seen, very rare that it happens, that is why nowadays we normally have two or three because one of them is always pastoral there to sort of deal with problems. And we have the doctoral college with all of its facilities, which I highly support, especially well-being and various groups and organisations and social things which are available. Even going dancing, isn't it, Matt, <laughs> is important because through that you can learn to get the tension out of your day-to-day -day work and your, the frustrations when things don't always work. Mm -hmm. It is important for you to not just say, I don't know what to do, to answer some questions for yourself. What is it that I need to know before I take the next step? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and link up that sort of non-specific recommendation to a, an example. Yeah. One, in the very first podcast episode, we touched on the differences in doing a PhD, we said later in your career or earlier in your career. So Matt and I both embarked on our PhDs directly after our undergraduate. Yeah. So you know, three months apart, and that was a, a summer. Um, whereas Alex, our guest, had some previous experience in industry and realised some of the pain points of the company that he was working in and then said... I think I can look at that. I think I can really delve into that problem. And I thought that was really valuable because he went into his PhD knowing the pain points that he had to research and solve. Whereas it took me personally the better of the two and a half years to figure out what pain points I need to solve. Well, it comes back again. I hate to keep using this word, which is used throughout all of the communication media this day, the journey. If you go through secondary school, college, undergraduate degree, master's degree, PhD, so I got my hands in the air, that's what I did, right? 
I guess maybe I was not asking the question is, am I mature enough? I know that's going to upset some people. Do I have enough experience, both personal and professional, to take the next step and get the most out of it? And am I, when I finally end up with my PhD and I walk out of the university looking for the next step, which in my case was to go to Canada to do a postdoc, was I really aware of enough things, especially coming from a very isolated community in New Zealand, to be able to gain the most out of the experience and the opportunities that came along? If you then go back and look at the people who are now being encouraged to go back and do postgraduate research as a mature student, so they may have had a family or they may have gone into a job and various things have happened that they've either lost the job, not through any incompetence, but because of economic pressures, i.e. Brexit and whatever else, then ultimately coming back in, you maybe now got a lot more experience, you've got a lot more, should I say, ability to ask the fundamental questions based on what you've, you've already learned through life to be able to probably get more out of the postgraduate experience. The one thing you won't do, because you'll feel old, is socialise and mix with the other postgraduates because, let's be honest, they may be 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years younger than you. Although I have had some of them, I've had two or three mature PhDs who love mixing with my younger PhDs, even though they got called mother all the time or other colloquialisms. But, but the key thing here is, is that it's becoming, again, aware of the ultimate question. Enjoy it. But you can only enjoy it if you're prepared to address the fact that it isn't just taking another step on life because you don't know what you want to do or whatever. You've got to do some of your own personal work. I have actually upset some of my former students by saying, I think between high school and university, everyone should take a year off. And by the way, tell mum you get out of bed at seven o'clock, you've got a job, which starts at 8.30. You have to prepare your own food. You don't just go back into the world that you've come from where mum and dad provide and do it. It is a year where you've got to get out and you've got to learn what is down the road. Now, that's why if I was the prime minister, I would make it compulsory that all young people must work through their high school education. Six weeks holiday, oh, I've got to have a holiday because I am a student to me is a very, very sad comment. To lay in bed, play with their cell phone, play with their computer, oh, well, I've got to lie on the beach, whatever. You've got to learn what is going to confront you down the road. Because I'm sad to say I've met a lot of people who have walked out of universities with great degrees who have never been able to meet their expectations. And part of it is their expectations were never actually questioned along the road as were they realistic and was there the opportunities to actually go in those directions that they wanted. And I can answer that one personally. I never thought that two days after I finished my PhD I'd be on an aeroplane and never go home. I left New Zealand never thinking that I would never go home, right? Because I suddenly realised, having come from paradise, Right? That's how I was brought up to think, New Zealand is paradise, and it is, that once you leave those shores, I'm not a traditional Kiwi who after two years would go home, right? I suddenly discovered once I was in Canada, oh wow, 
look what I can do here. Oh, I learned a whole new area of my science. I then moved to Imperial College to expand on that, then to Surrey to even more expand on that. So I'm a very unique academic, and part of it's my cultural background, but more importantly, my own personal desire. The world is a fantastic place to learn. And that's why I love encouraging my students in work-based learning. When I come to visit them, right, Matt? It isn't, oh, are you doing enough chemistry today (laughs) and asking you what pH stands for or whatever? It's about trying to build up a portfolio of experiences, both personal and professional, not always directed at your subject, which are going to answer the questions to, I don't know why. And just sort of, we, we've talked a lot about what the, the students need to consider when they want to do a master's or a PhD, and that it's really important to consider what experience you have and where you want to, to take your degree afterwards. And, just to sort of round off, what can the supervisors and the universities do to really help their students manage their expectations and explore where their degree could take them? Well, that is a multi-leveled area because Mm -hmm. within the universities, through the research councils and, and, and government bodies, we've now got a much better support mechanism within doctoral colleges, within the various, uh, in, in the old days, the, the social events of the university were all for undergraduates, very few for postgraduates. That is now being slowly addressed. Mm-hmm. The postgraduates have also got to become responsible for their own entertainment and all their own activities, etc., so that they are literally getting more out of the actual engagement of going through the postgraduate journey. The other thing that I think is also important is, yes, in many ways, you are preparing yourself for employment. You know, the one thing a supervisor will always tell you is, you're not going to have two or three days off like you might have done as an undergraduate because there was a music festival up the road or whatever else. You are required to work X number of hours. You are expected to spend so much time. You have deadlines. You've got to have reports written. Nowadays, the pressure is to write publications and whatever else. So, one, you've got to understand a lot more about the responsibilities of what you're going to do as a postgraduate researcher. And those responsibilities also rely on the supervisors. I think one of the biggest problems I see in my experience around the world is a lot of postgraduate supervisors don't communicate very well. And it's not their fault. It is the pressures that are being put on them by the expectations of the university, what an academic's role is nowadays. You know, it really is in the pressure of funding, publications, now we're on ranking groups, and you know, uh, the same goes with research councils. You know, a young researcher who's got brilliant ideas may not necessarily ever get funded because you're now going to be part of a team. You've got to have experience. You've got to have track records and whatever else. So it, it, it is becoming much more pressurised for you to be successful as a young academic. Do you think that's uh, increasing the quality of the academics? Well, if, if I was somebody who was thinking, as a member of the community, I'm pumping my money in to pay for those people in the university, I have higher expectations what they should be doing, the answer to that must always be yes. But it's sad. I remember when I first came to this country, a well-known colleague of mine who was head of organic chemistry, an old traditional academic, would go to the staff club, read the newspaper or a new scientist, and he said he did more of his thinking there than he'd ever do in his office, because the moment he walked in the office... The pressure of what his secretary wanted, his students wanting him and whatever. 
I do most of my best academic creative thinking while driving a car because at least I'm in control and I've got time to think and I'm not being disturbed. Once I'm in the university, I'm sorry, the joke is it's like Piccadilly Circus and Matt knows exactly what I talk about. Everybody wants you. There are pressures to be doing things all the time. As a supervisor, you need to communicate. You cannot lock your door. You have to make yourself available. And I'm sorry, once a month is not good enough. I mean, I, my own personal sacrifice was, you want to do research with me, you have access to me every day. And I, I am unique in doing that. But I was prepared to work till seven o'clock. My family would know. If you wanted me, I would not leave my office to seven. And those two hours were absolutely productive for me seeing most of my researchers. And there were years, like the last year before I became an emeritus professor, I had 14 direct students I was responsible for. Mm. But they didn't all want to see me on the one day, amen. But the key thing was, you need to be able to be there to support each mm. other. I will demand, because I'm the supervisor, there are things that I know you must be doing to be along the pathway to be successful mm. in producing. And that's changing, because remember, in the old days, it was right a... 40-page PhD thesis, which I once heard of for a maths one, to most of mine are three to 400 pages because we have to generate all the data and report all our data in analytical chemistry, to nowadays it's three published papers. So a lot of universities are now saying to be successful in a PhD, you just need to publish three papers in three acceptable journals. Well, that produces a whole different field. You're not just doing inquiring work. You've got to generate data and be successful very early on to be able to publish that first paper. It produces a whole total different field of pressure. Mm -hmm. And that's the way governments are now trying to change because I guess the question being asked by community is they want to see a better return for those who are working in universities. We're like companies now. So, okay, so you've touched on work-based learning yeah. a lot and you've also given examples of your involvement in industry throughout your academic career. Sticking to the UK, what would you say are the biggest differences in how industry works in our country versus academia? And are the stereotypes, and I'll, I'll let you decide what you think the stereotypes are for each, true? Well, you, 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 you're asking a question which unfortunately has a very strong political banner above it. it. It's called Brexit. Oh. And a lot of other things, like now the pandemic, <laughs> because there are being continually changing pressures put on companies. And in fact, in many ways, big multinationals have had to downsize. And I have seen some really big, well-known international chemical companies get rid of whole divisions in computer-aided chemistry, for example, because they cannot bring in sufficient funding through whatever stream and pathway to keep that area going. Also, people cost money. In fact, it was, it was once a, a boss of... GlaxoSmithKline said to me in his laboratory, he said, what's the most expensive thing in my laboratory? And I knew the answer, the person who runs the mass spectrometer, because he's been there for 20 years and he is the knowledge, he is the expertise, not the instrument. Because he will say, oh, it's the instrument because of how much it's cost us to buy it. People are expensive because they carry with them expertise. And in the young person's mind, they want to keep changing that. They want new experiences, like I said, with my own children every two years. Industry has changed and is still changing. It's downsizing. It wants higher quality graduates. And the message that annoys me, 
They want a graduate to walk out who can walk straight into their office and carry on doing their job immediately without any training. All the engagements that companies used to do are slowly disappearing. In fact, one big multinational I know and won't mention do all their recruitment through LinkedIn because they're only looking for people who've already got a success story. They don't want to bring in a new graduate who may only have whatever they've done on their PhD, what's in their CV. They are looking for more worldly experience, more professional skills. They want a bit of computing. They want a little bit of modeling. They want a little bit of whatever across the sector because the pressure on them is we do not have time to be not successful in bringing in a recruitment of someone who maybe after two years doesn't fit in the company. They want a track record of somebody who already has acquired a much larger profile of skill. And that skill is not just academic. So you have to equip yourself now as a young person. In fact, this particular company, their head of human resources, the first thing she looks for on a CV is how much volunteering you've done, not your degree. Why? Because if you do volunteering, you are giving your own personal time and energy to help others. That means you know how to fit in with other people. You know how to work within groups. You know how to take roles within groups, be it leaders and or supporting people. And that is more important than the qualification. Why? Because they bring in people who are very academically successful who just do not know how to socialise within the workplace and cause trouble. So it is a very complex world. But my, my message is the journey of just plotting one step is in another, passing exams, which is the model that we are following at the lower level of education, needs to go back and you need to be actually asking a lot more personal questions. You need to be able to put the energy in to finding out more about yourself so that you don't ask, I don't know what I want to do. You've got more information about well, if I do take the step, what are my expectations? Are they real? Am I going to be able to meet them? I need to meet other people, and they don't necessarily all have to be chemists. There may be others that you have to live with within your accommodation or whatever, or through your social group. And I wasn't laughing when I said go dancing or go and play sport. I, I was a double international sportsman as well in my career. So fundamentally, I was also doing a lot of my own training and or meeting people through that. Learn a lot about other people outside of just being in the laboratory and being a chemist all the time. And they helped me, I guess, kind of put together the, the, the pathway and the way I think of the world today. Thank you, Neil. I think we'll, we'll draw it to a close there, but we've covered a, a very broad range of topics today and I think it's going to be really interesting listening to this one back. I think there's a lot of things that people can get from that and hopefully will help people choose better postgraduate studies and, and have an idea where they want to go in the future and I think that's really important. So thank you. Thank you for the invitation and I hope and bless for everybody that they can find happiness and get success in whatever they want to do. Thank you all for listening. This episode was brought to you by Claudia J. Martin and Matt Bone. The episode was edited and produced by Ivan Moraviev, Rachel Ward, and Paul Spencer from the Bristol Doctoral College. We hope to see you again in the next episode. <laughs>